Yo, 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 everybody. It is Eli. And Jeff. And on this episode of the Catch Up Podcast, we sit down with PETA's media director, Ben Williamson. We talk about the misconceptions people have of PETA, how they've picketed events of ours. And just ultimately how we as hosts and flexitarians, just two normal dudes, find out where we sit in like the middle of radical animal activism or just an unwavering love of meat. So just let us know how we did. Hopefully you like it. Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts. Eli Aruth. Editor-in-chief. And Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch-up. All right, guys. Welcome to a beautiful new season of the catch-up podcast. I'm joined by two very special guests. I got the plant-based god and Fubi's regular, Wally Vu. Hello, hello. And we got another special guest, Ben Williamson. He is the media director over at PETA. He also is a very astute groomer of himself. Very good looking (laughs) dude. And he plays soccer multiple times a week. A fan of Manchester United. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome, guys. Great to be here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. So just to get it kicked off, uh... There's a lot of misconceptions about PETA. Food Beast has a lot of misconceptions about PETA. People in general might have a lot of misconceptions. And I think as consumers of food and we talk about food all the time, I think it's just it was great to have you on. And and we're just going to talk about food and, and hear a little bit more about you, your story um, and kind of kick it off from there. But we've had we've had a bit of a, you know, storied history with PETA. So it's it's fun to kind of just talk, talk through it on this season two of the podcast let's go sounds kick it off (laughs) um so ben tell me about how long have you been with PETA? i've been with PETA for about seven years now i was uh, with PETA uk for three years and i've been in the us over here for three and a half years so yeah it's rather a long time i've been vegan now for coming on nine years what's that story like everyone has a good vegan story. everyone has a good <laughs> vegan story um well everyone says their story is unique as well i'm gonna say mine's unique um i never grew up with animals i've never had a, a dog or a, a cat or you know i had a had a goldfish who was called fish um but i never developed sort of uh, an emotional attachment to animals until my time at peter actually um, so I came at veganism through ethics. I was reading a lot of um, of the Greek classics and Socrates in particular stuck out to me. Some people, some men need to live, others live to eat. And the whole idea that we should kill animals for food when it's entirely unnecessary resonated with me. And so I went vegan at the, fir- the first instance. I was just trialing it. I decided if it was something that would fit with my lifestyle and it did I felt great immediately I felt like I had constant energy I felt um, I didn't have peaks and troughs in my energy I felt like I was snacking all through the day and grazing and I just felt so much healthier and lighter and fitter and uh, so it stuck with me ever since what was transitioning like nine years ago 
And then do you look at people transitioning today like you have it so easy like in comparison to a decade ago? Was it t- was it tough? It was getting there nine years ago. I mean, I hear the stories of people, you know, people who I work with who went vegan 40 years ago and think, goodness oh. me, how do they do that? You know, they used to go. People didn't know what the word vegan meant. They sure. thought it was someone from Las Vegas. Uh, so <laughs> They didn't know what tofu was. People used to do toast, taste testings of tofu. Uh, Peter staff used to go to radio DJs and, and show them what this uh, bean curd like substance was and they would just get that away from me that's crazy so no I mean you know long gone are the days of, of stodgy garden burgers and lentils and now you've got Beyond Meat and Gardein and all these wonderful products readily available I went to Target this week they've got a whole plant-based food freezer now and you know uh, I think it's come a long way. Uh, when I started, it was we had Amy's, we had things like that in London. We had Planet Organic, which was like a kind of lessons of this world. Um, so it was getting a lot better. That's a funny picture on your Instagram, by the way. Uh, to- <laughs> tofu Homeboy on Instagram. Oh yeah, follow, follow me. I need to follow us at Tofu Homeboy. There's a picture of Ben like halfway in this free the freezer in the Target aisle, and and it, it reminded me. So I went vegan for 30 days, not for necessarily a noble reason, but I lost a bet at work here at Food Beast, and of it's, course, it's the, very noble you to uphold the bet. I upheld the bet, and <laughs> yeah, it was you upheld, dr- oh, let's, upheld the bet 14 months later. But he upheld the bet. I upheld the bet. Well, because what was happening is I lost a bet. Uh, for whatever reason and then uh, I was supposed to go vegan for 30 days I decided you know what let's go during the stereotypically hardest month of the year to do it so I did it during December during the holidays and so forth I'm glad I did it very glad I did it but why I resonated with that image on your on your Instagram is when you are vegan you start appreciating every time you find like such a good meal yeah (laughs) and so when I was I just imagined myself in a target aisle finding like oh here's all the good vegan stuff and you're just like halfway (laughs) in the freezer so I really uh I connected with you on that Instagram good uh, glad to hear Ben how would how would you describe like your role at PETA and kind of like what's what's your main job day to day to do and then if you could expand upon too is there specific maybe like top level strategies that you have on a like regular basis and like how do you measure those strategies like what success i think because that would be helpful for me to kind of understand the perspective of not only PETA but for like your role kind of within yeah. that organization? Yeah, it's a good question. My job, my official job title is Senior International Media Director. So it's a rather long job title. Um, basically, I just help uh, members of the press, of broadcast media, to try and get a better understanding of PETA. Um, I try and pitch our, our stories in the news. So I try and I work on exclusives mainly, I work on one-on-ones. Um, I, I launch our investigations and our legal and our corporate casework, so the serious side of PETA. I launch that in the press. So usually the more complicated subjects, holding, working with journalists rather than just blasting out a news release and seeing what sticks. But as with regards to what, uh, how that fits in with the ethos of PETA, I'm, I'm a small cock in, in a very big machine. We've got uh, about 500 members of staff in the U.S., uh, there's people in UK, there's people in Australia and the Philippines and Peter Germany is massive. So, um, you know, at Peter, we just do whatever, whatever we think will 
get animal rights and veganism into the media. So I work on the serious side, but there's people doing all sorts of other, um, taking any opportunity we can. We try and have something for everybody. So we have Peter Kids who work on the, the young people. We have Peter Two who work on teens and college students. We have um, Peter Prime, which is for people over 60. So we really do try and offer something for everybody. I love your content. Oh, great. Thank I you. Gotta, I got to be honest with you. I, I, during my month of veganism, every time I had a question, about, mm-hmm. hey, I'm in the drive through at Taco Bell. I have no clue what mm-hmm. to order. Mm-hmm. And you guys are the first people that pop up. Yeah. Almost everything. Like, yeah. is blank vegan? You know, you're yeah. right there. And that content was extremely, extremely helpful. Um, I'm curious how you choose, like, what what content to spend your time on because one is very kind of utilitarian and really worked for me is um and then how do you choose others because you Peter even contributes to food beast i mean i've been mm. seeing some of the more recent articles like there's you know nine great consumer packaged noodles you can get that are yeah. vegan at the store that you just kind of either overlooking or you should just try yeah. so that content is extremely valuable how do you choose like what where to spend your guys's time you have limited resources i'm assuming yeah well the the peter living pages which is where all our food content is hosted they're some of the most underrated and underutilized and undermentioned parts of peter's work you see most people see what gets in the press but we have a whole blog team who actually i stood at the computer of one of them the other day and they've got this slack channel between themselves and they're just swapping photos of the latest food like i've seen this in this supermarket i've seen that it's it's probably the 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 first place in America that's going to spot everything as it happens, all the latest vegan food that's out there. So, yeah, I really would advise people to go to peter.org slash living slash food and, you know, how to veganize your Taco Bell order, how to, what vegan products can you get at Costco? All the, all the information is there. And I'm, I'm glad that you found it. I'm glad that it comes up first. Yeah, I mean, it, but so on the other side of it, though, it's it, it becomes like confusing rhetoric when it was... Uh, Here's, here's all the good things you can get at Taco Bell. But it was a resource that I felt was extremely valuable that PETA was offering, but I didn't know it was offered. And the years of misconception I had about PETA, I think got, oh, I mean, it was overshadowed by like the loud acts mm. of of you guys gaining attention, right? And driving awareness to animal rights and, and, and the activism that you guys do. I mean, how do you guys balance that? Because for me, it's, I wish I had known about the resources earlier, mm-hmm. but because I had seen so many loud acts mm-hmm. from PETA and then the entire myth and mi- misconception of of you guys um, that I still don't know is completely true or not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's the purpose of us kind of meeting today and, and chatting it through. But there's a lot of resources that almost get overshadowed mm-hmm. by the loud acts. And you as a media director, I mean, we're all yeah. in media. Yeah. So well, those those living pages, those food blog pages, are some of the most popular on Peter's website. So they do get viewed an awful lot by people. I'd say the job of of my role and other people who work mostly with the press is to bring people in first of all to to have that conversation, to get into people's living rooms. You know, Peter's always tried to put veganism into the mainstream. So our job is to get vegan and animal rights issues talked about in the press, which was not as easy as it is now that you see vegan food content constantly on Business Insider or even in the Daily Meal or, or Food Beast. Um, so we we the press department tries to get vegan into the news. Once you're vegan and you're interested in looking for vegan content, that's when you can come to our site and see all the myriad of things that we offer. 
Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think what Eli's kind of nuanced and and trying to say is is that there's uh, there's content that is kind of built for people transitioning kind of into veganism. There's also like content uh, in reference to how a cow as a child is an immigrant, right? That for people who don't understand the argument, mm-hmm. it can be really abrasive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we don't necessarily understand the, like when do you, when is that as important a strategy as the education of veganism? Because when in anyone, any entity, any organization kind of attaches itself to a news cycle, and we're in media, so we all do this, is there's a, there's a big pop culture moment. Um, how do we make something content-wise that permeates through that pop culture moment? Um, and so I think that, like, that strategy is a, an example of, again, for people who don't di- really dive into the the PETA communications, all they're seeing is a headline. Like that can be that can be pretty off-putting, right? It's a it's a heart-wrenching story with um, you know real stakes at place with children being separated for families. And oh, by the way, like it's just as bad for a, a, a cow's calf to be separated from a cow. And I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying that the perspective can can seem pretty opportunistic. Mm-hmm. versus, you know, well, having like a separate dialogue. Like, does it have to tie into immigration because that's what the press are focused on in that instant? Sure. Or are there other ways of kind of going about it? And and again, for, for our listeners and, and my context, and I know I'm droning for a bit, is I'm someone who's who's cut down my dairy intake, who's ordered Blue Apron specifically for vegetarian meals so I can get some sort of understanding for it. And so I kind of sit in this in this middle ground, yeah. you know, where um, I understand the values of PETA and I like a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And then some of the things that I see, I'm just I have question marks. Yeah. And I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, it is hard to reach people, as we all know. Um, we could stand on a street corner handing out vegan recipes. But how many people is that ultimately going to change? PETA's creative teams do they use uh, sex they use shock tactics they use controversial methods because we're competing with wealthy corporations whose very marketing budgets are about the the, opera- the size of peter's operating budgets and their very uh, existence um is fueled on killing millions and millions of of healthy animals uh, so we have to shake people up. We have to instigate conversation. That's what Peter has has been doing for many years, and we've been very successful at it. If you take a look at our fur campaign, if you take a look at the rise of veganism when vegan wasn't even in the lexicon 30 years ago when Peter started, you know we have to shake people up and wake them out of their comfort zone just so that they have th- this conversation. Um, we know that uh, that just by having those conversations when you sit down to dinner is what what starts people, brings people on board and gets people talking and, and gets them thinking about these issues, which otherwise they wouldn't think about. So yeah, we, we are probably imperfect, you know, but we see the situation as too urgent, too dire. We kill 100 million chickens per day in the world, 1 million chickens per hour in the US. The situation is too urgent to worry about how perfect we are as an organization. And so is that in that sense too of if there's short-term negative feedback from some groups of people that like 
aren't hardline in their stance is that is that kind of collateral damage because but the message is getting out there to such a wide audience because i and in some ways feel like collateral damage where i like what you guys do and preparing for this podcast learning about all the ways you guys support for example like injured and dying animals and things like that makes me really excited to talk to you but like i've but i wouldn't know that if I didn't do a three-hour deep dive into like PETA podcasts, into like PETA the brand, and and read articles across sites. And I know the average person isn't doing that. Yeah. And so I get that it's like working and getting attention. I think there's like, but there's also a middle ground audience too that could act could actively engage. It, I just will most likely throughout my life never engage on that yeah. hard line. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, is there a place for, for me too? Yeah, I think, you know, we've all crossed the line. Those are on the front lines battling and trying to get people to change their eating habits and to try and be healthier people. Um, PETA doesn't strive to be unpopular. Uh, it's certainly not our intent to go around offending people for no good reason. But we know that this is what works. This is what gets us in the news where we don't have the budget to, to like, our, like our adversaries do, to create massive advertising campaigns. So as long as the message gets through, we're fine with people shooting the messenger. It's interesting. I mean, there's a craftiness in the way that I feel you guys operate the way a lot of upstarts do. Like if you had a, if you had hundred million dollars to throw at marketing you might have the time to do the nuanced hey let's promote Kyrie Irving as like this dope NBA player mm -hmm. who has gone vegan and through his diet excels and then there's good energy because that was my general kind of question I just feel like good energy is the best way to get into people's minds and psyches and kind of change lifestyles yeah change diet so for me i'm a basketball fan i enjoy pop culture i see kyrie irving and i hear a story of man he's changed his diet entirely and he's one of the best players in the nba and he's actually on a trajectory to become like one of the best and it seems directly correlated to his vegan diet and he cited it how, how did you now now you this must you must be foaming at the mouth like oh yeah if you don't think if you don't think we've tried to reach out to Kyrie and work with him you're crazy I mean Peter Peter's all about celebrities you know we have been uh, working with celebrities for decades and now everyone and their and their mother wants to do it. Um, so yeah, obviously the, the good stuff is great. We hold vegan baking competitions and have done for many years. We hold, uh, you know, cutest kid competitions and like things that make people smile, our animal adoption and rescue stories. We adopt and, and rescue hundreds, thousands of animals every month. But that's not the stuff that gets in the news. So that's not what Peter, people know Peter for. The stuff get, that gets in the news is the controversial stuff, the stuff that other animal rights charities stay away from. But who has heard of the other ones? Peter, everyone knows Peter. Um, so yeah, we, we, we do what we can. We try and offer something from, from the most conservative to the most bold, and we've been very successful at doing so. And for me, I feel like there's a, I don't have any data to back this up, but from what I, uh, consume in the media there's obviously like a level of bias specifically toward like any human interest story versus any non-human interest story in my opinion like if you flip on the news like the the scale of what's on a front page for like a murder for example in comparison to 
something that you guys hold very highly, like animal abuse, for example, like there's there's this inherent bias from like, let's tell human stories kind of all the time. And I think that bias is good because we're humans. It, the media is covering humans like, but it, it's interesting because when you bring up that perspective of your battling that bias because does the media just not care until you have a crazy enough story to where then the, then they'll cover your story and so is that the battle you're fighting is, is it's, it's very hard to get animal abuse into the news you know we do investigations all the time that uh, you know, people don't want to hear about it. And because people don't want to see it on their televisions, then news producers don't want to put it on. So, yeah, we have to attach it to a celebrity or something shocking in order to get people to take to follow those links and click through to the information on our website. Um, it, it, it's uh, the news now is saturated with Trump and with other issues that it's even harder than it was several years ago, unless you have a big name attached to it, a big clothing brand or food brand uh, or a big celebrity narrating the footage. Yeah, it's 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 pretty hard. But, you know, we do what we can. And, and uh, I think we're definitely making an, an impact. I mean, I, I want to for a moment, Wally, I know you have a really interesting kind of transition into being vegan i mean we've eaten yeah. a lot together in the past i think it's important to hear kind of where everyone comes from and the shades of being vegan so i mean could you just tell us yeah a little yeah more for about sure it? i mean uh so i yo i was a i still am a proud and dedicated food beast i love to eat i love food it's like you know a pillar of my existence you know what i'm saying and <laughs> not just through Respect. sustenance but like for just enjoyment you know like the sheer uh the the activity of breaking bread with friends uh with family with you know to celebrate the whatever. hunt for what's known yeah again. you know like always enjoy always had an appetite for food you know and and uh i always was seeking out like yo where's the best whatever like i don't even care like if it's, this is the best thing you got, I'm going to eat it, you know? And, um, uh, yeah, I, I love food, and but uh, I, that my relationship with food changed last year when my uncle passed away, and uh, he's Buddhist, and um, so there's, like, a Buddhist tradition of observing, like, a 49-day vegetarian diet in kind of, like, a way to accumulate good karma to with the intention to help your loved ones pass on. So during that 49 days, uh, I started to gain a lot more insight and or not insight, but just like my, my perspective on food and and particularly how karma, how I related karma with food in, in that instance, like kind of changed my perspective on food. And <clears throat> so I went from like 49 days and I watched that movie Okja. That's yeah. on, have you seen that on Netflix? Yeah. Yeah. That Can we cut some of this <laughs> that movie fucked me up. <laughs> There's a scene in that movie where it's like they, they talk, they uh, they portray like factory farming of animals, and there's like kind of like a slaughter line, and it kind of like hit home, and I was like, damn. I don't know if I want to eat meat anymore. Were you still vegetarian at this point? Yeah. Because you, you went through this transition where it was vegetarian first. And I remember you were on the podcast at, during that time yeah, yeah, where you're yeah. talking about this observance. You were vegetarian at this point. So you had a, a thought process like, I'm not eating meat right now. And yeah. I think you were on a trajectory there, but you're still eating like cheese. And, yeah, cheese and, 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 and eggs. Yeah. Yo, cheese and, and eggs, eggs and dairy, like 
it can sustain like a, a person appetite wise like like you're 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 craving for food for like a long time so i was eating you know the regular like vegetarian diet eggs dairy cheese all that stuff and um i went from like 49 days when i reached 49 days though i'm gonna go let's see, let's just do like 100 days and over the course of the 100 days it's like that that continued my journey and you know finding more Food and I, I went to this uh, the OC Veg Fest, which is like a vegan festival, and uh, I came across uh, the people from iAnimal, and they have these like VR headsets that like play like a five minute synopsis of the life of livestock from birth to slaughter, and I was like, oh shit, I'm not eating dairy or eggs anymore. <laughs> like, uh, and then so yeah, I, I stopped. I transitioned to like a fully plant based, like vegan lifestyle in late October, and I've just been rocking like that ever since. Yeah, because well, and, and Eli, your question too was, I think when non vegans talk about vegans, mm-hmm. they like just clump everything into that single category. Like, yeah. I don't like vegans because they're annoying at restaurants or whatever, mm-hmm. like. The isms that are really people. good looking, <laughs> but but there there's there's like with any group like is classifying this entire group of people who don't or who eat primarily vegetables like do we need to not class just like not throw that. what's a better classification like what's how can we better shape that conversation because like when I'm hanging out with Wally mm. that food beast is in him. Right. And by food beast is a definition. He's hungry and thirsty for the excitement of food, the hunt of finding the next spot. So like when I went vegan for 30 days, I'm gonna keep saying this a lot, by yeah, the way. So yeah. it sounds super. You got like, that badge. You got yeah. that badge. Bro. Yeah, I'm super cool. I was <laughs> vegan for 30 days. Um, but it was ex- the first 10 days were miserable. The first 10 days was like an awakening of mm-hmm. this. This is a chore. This is a punishment. I lost. And then by day 11, I was like, this is exciting. I am looking at my food for the first time, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm looking at every label. I don't shop very well. So I'm in my cupboards looking at all the ingredients. It's like, why does this pasta have dairy? Like I was very militant about how I wanted yeah, to, to be sure. strict to this diet because I didn't, didn't want to respect the bet that I lost. And just by being that diligent about it, I, was, I learned so much about everything in my cabinet. I didn't hate everything in my cabinet for it, but I was so aware of what I was putting into my body, what's in all my cupboards. I was asking more questions about why, why is this dairy in in this particular like did it need to be there why is there powdered milk and everything yeah like i'm not (laughs) i'm not offended just yet again because i didn't go vegan for any ethical reason right like my intro in was a very surface level experimental experimental right i wanted to tell a story after the fact but what i ended up learning and and i think about day 12 or 13 wally sent me this link like you should watch this video and I didn't watch it because I was just like, I know I, I get the naivete in me and what I wanted to shield myself from was like, I knew I have a lot of chef friends. I knew where my animal products were coming from. Mm-hmm. I very much knew. You um, to be reminded of it. Exactly. I'll, I'll be honest with you. And I was like, I got it. Cool. I got it. Like, I don't need to see that one. And I, I guess if I had seen it, it would have been even more impactful. But the hunt of being vegan was so exciting. For 30 days. And to this day, like re-energize. That's why I enjoy hanging out with Wally. And if you see our group chats, it's just like recommendations of where we should be eating yeah. next. That's vegan. And it really 
it made me more passionate about food. You know, I've been doing food beast going on 10 years. During that 30 days, I was uber passionate about food, more so than ever. Because I was also, I never had been pissed about food prior. I never returned food at a restaurant. I never shit talk on food. But the first time I had diet cheese, I spit it up and I was very offended that like, I only have X amount of meals in the day. I care about all the food in my body. And why does this cheese taste like snot? Like I hated it. Right. And it's not fair. Someone like probably went through a lot of work to put that cheese on. But long story short, I was very, very passionate about food. I think you could be a passionate food beast vegan. 100%. Right. Like 100%. So I think think that's interesting, though, and that there's there's a hunt for it. And I think if food beast could have a mission on that side, it's like just to promote some of that stuff a little bit more in that culture. I got a question for you guys. You guys think and, and probably Ben specifically to you, too, but. In putting it in uh, like tech terms, I guess, but do you guys think that veganism would be scalable like 50 years ago? Or is it, mm. is it something that's because of how accessible, because there's a, a refrigerated section in mm. Target and tar- you know, there's enough stores with that distribution in more rural parts of the com- country, is like veganism, can it actually take over now because there's the level of technology, innovation, and products like like Beyond or the products that are like really moving the needle and moving people over? Like are is it having the moment because technology is meeting caught up with it? Caught up with the advocacy? Um ca- yeah. I'm kinda curious. Uh, yeah, on I your think thought. so. I think uh several things. One, the internet has made it so more people are Uh, able to satisfy that curiosity about where their food comes from. Peter's videos and other groups' videos about animal slaughter are are shared massively, whereas before it was much harder to to connect people with where their food comes from. So as they're taking more of an interest, more people are going vegetarian, vegan, and even flexitarian, you know, cutting down, reducitarian, cutting down on their food, on their meat and dairy and eggs. Um, At the same time, yes, uh, scientists and uh, food labs are now creating such good tasting food and Silicon Valley and uh, sovereign wealth funds in the Gulf and in Singapore are investing that putting their money into it that that's really driving uh, the increase in plant-based protein products that we're seeing so yeah I think those those two things uh, an increasing demand and an increasing supply of, of technically brilliant t- tasting food products is what what leads us to the point we're at now where you know it's definitely being talked about and and infiltrating people's dinner i mean because for a long time did vegan food just suck yeah like it does it still like is the major like do we have enough good options for people and is there anything we could do to like make it better like is it inclusive enough that are enough people are they innovating on that front because like one of the biggest stories on our site this week was this restaurant in New York City called Ducks Eatery, and they're known for their meats. They smoke all their meats. I'm sure you guys all saw this video. And what they ended up creating was a watermelon ham. It's basically a just a smoked watermelon. Smoked, they marinated. Brine. They treated it with the same respect they do all their meats, right? Like they given it all the beautiful culture that meat had to their audience, and they did it to this watermelon. And the result was this delicious looking and tasting thing. Are there enough people like that that for some reason all they wanted to do was just provide a vegan option for their base here in New York City? 
that's that was their mo like are enough people do enough people have that incentive like is is the idea of like vegan ingenuity enough of a driving force or should we be doing more like as a culture I think we're getting uh, new products come online all the time. I mean, you mentioned Daya cheese. Their, their recipe is getting better all the time. And now the new Daya stuff is, is awesome. And I'll, I'll, I'll back you up on the, the old Daya wasn't my favorite. <laughs> but we've got Follow Your Heart cheese now. We've got Spectacular. This, this, yeah, exactly. Um, we've got the Beyond Sausage now, which if you haven't tried it, it's, it's great. so good. Yeah. So, yeah, things are coming online all the time. Uh, we're about to get to vegan shrimp and vegan seafood and uh, vegan bacon. And, you know, I think if you... If you've got any money or you want to make some money, vegan bacon is where it's at. If you can create a vegan bacon recipe, you'll be a millionaire by years. <laughs> oh, so, there's a BL, there's a vegan BLT over here that's oh, fire. Where I sent you the link, vegan Nirvana, and oh, vegan Beach, Nirvana. cut me a okay. check, yo, <laughs> <laughs> or at least some free sandwiches. Uh, well, because I remember when we we had a person in the office named Phil that was that was vegan in the Food Beast office, and I remember five or six years ago when we we would go to like raw restaurants and where for me that was like too vegan too fast yeah. like there was there was like no there was no middle ground but now when i'm going to like gracias madre in los angeles or i'm going to places that have chefs extremely knowledgeable with the flavor palette and knowing what they're doing like Back then, if someone was like, hey, let's go to like a raw vegan restaurant, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be fine. But now I almost, you almost can't tell. Mm. Like the refried beans that I had at Gracias Madre, life changing, right? And I would never think that those refried beans are even possible without cream, without lard, without anything, because those are the beans that I had had. And so I do think there's been enough of a restaurant shift not only from the dedicated vegan restaurants but the restaurants that are meat specific that are still offering alternatives where for me i'm almost starting to be just as captivated because as long as the price point is similar and it's a flavor profile that i like if i can if i can cut red meat out of that meal or if i can cut dairy out of that meal i'm like added bonus like because why not because it's delicious yeah, and I, would, I think that, that I, I think we're also in a bit of a restaurant bubble, but that's like a different thing. But the amount of restaurants that are serving items that they're not just throwing on with diet cheese anymore mm-hmm. is what I'm seeing. It's like we are craftily putting on menu items mm-hmm. that meet the restaurant brands like aesthetic, but are still good because if this isn't good, like it's not going to sell. Well, it's getting out into the masses as well. The Beyond Burgers now on the menus of uh, TGI Fridays mm-hmm. and at Bear Burger and, yeah, vegan options. I mean, any restaurateur worth their savvy is taking a look at what's going on now and saying, you know what, we got to get on this vegan train. We need to start offering products to people. So, yeah, it's getting more available. And I think people, are, like you say, it, if if the taste is, is the same, then why not? Uh, if your food didn't, mean that animals were needlessly slaughtered why wouldn't you go for the the tasty vegan option and i think that i think the future is exciting as well the future we're thinking about what we're able to do with uh in vitro meats clean meat coming online maybe in the next few years they think that uh the meat grown from that's real animal flesh that just hasn't uh, meant any slaughtered animals have had, any animals have had to be slaughtered 
Uh, so it's grown in a, a brewery uh, type place, and uh, that's they can create burgers now. There was it was unveiled to the world in 2013, but at a price tag of like a quarter of a million dollars, and now it's uh, it's getting to the stage where it's going to become commercially viable. They think in the next few years. What we're able, what we're seeing with gene editing technology as well, being able to change the the genetic structure of vegetables to make them more tasty and meaty like. So yeah, I think that that meat really will look back on it and, and dairy and eggs uh, future generations will look back on it with uh, disgust and, and disbelief that we were doing these things to animals when, when there was so much good food around and so just to confirm the if meat is made in a lab and doesn't have slaughtering like Peter's just like fully behind oh that. yeah yeah we uh, we were one of the earliest investors in in vitro meats and we offered uh, prize money for the first in vitro chicken that could come online so yeah our founder actually read an article in I think the new scientist magazine decades ago and started to fund the work of of these uh, university scientists and um, yeah it's amazing what's happening now so yeah I mean if you if you uh, you know don't kill millions of cows in order to make a burger, but maybe take the skin cells of a couple of cows, living cows, um, and recreate their genetic material in a laboratory, then yeah, of course that's something Peter would support. What's uh, what's Peter's position on uh, impossible meats? Because I've been seeing some chatter on uh, like the vegan Facebook groups I'm in. It's so meta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you guys aren't familiar, have you guys heard the story yet? No, I don't. What's the so Impossible uh, Meats had actually lab tested on some rats and fed them like some mm. absorbent amount of like one of the ingredients in the Impossible Meats. And uh, I don't think it was like a ton of rats and i think this this can be a gray area amongst different vegans and stuff like that i'm not actually sure if they still do the testing but there was there was animal testing so amongst my friends we've talked about and like we're kind of off the impossible meat train for for the moment so yeah no it's a good question so in 2015 uh, impossible came to us and asked us how they could do laboratory testing for their new ingredient which is called soy leg hemoglobin and mm-hmm. it's got the heme in it that gives it the meaty taste and texture um so they wanted to know how they could do these experiments our scientists tried to push them down the non-animal testing route and they didn't get back to us and instead they went ahead with these tests and they killed 188 rats they fed soy leg hemoglobin to these rats and then killed them and dissected them and studied their material their organs and that's testing that could have been avoided had they talked to us and had they speak to, spoken to us first. Um, so yes, whilst uh, whilst they claim that uh, their invention will save the lives of millions of, of cows, they uh, have killed these rats. There are other companies like Beyond Meat, like Gardein, who have pledged never to do animal testing again, unlike Impossible, who haven't yet. Mm. So we're hopeful that they will see the light and, and come around and atone for what they've done. But uh, for now, we're, we're definitely pushing. It's not something that we can support. We're pushing people towards Beyond and other companies that have taken an ethical stance on animal testing. What are the other methods, though, that could have been... like? what you would have provided if they had taken the time and just waited until you got back well, or vice versa. The, fa- the fact is that they didn't need to do these experiments. The FDA, the Food Drug Administration, doesn't require these experiments for uh, to, to be put on the list of generally regarded as safe grass. 
Um, so, you know, there are plenty of vegans that have been eating impossible burgers for years that could tell them, hey, this stuff is perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can a rat model really tell anyone anyway? We could get into a whole argument about animal testing, but I would just say that there are plenty of, of vegan alternatives that haven't harmed the hair on any animal's head. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's without impossible in the room. I don't really know why they went that route. They might have a reason like, well, we're doing this because we maybe down the line. Who knows? I have no idea. Someone might consume 200 times the daily amount of soy, whatever that word is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Ben, but doesn't that doesn't that put PETA in the incredibly hard position? Like impossible is well distributed. Impossible has tons of news value impossible has the consumer interest right now like and again as much as i don't condone the animal testing either is is that something where they have a chance to be potentially globally consumer changing and like we have to stay mum because of their practices even though they could be they can change consumer habits like i know they're talking about they could, you know, save the millions of cows, but that's isn't that actually like possibly true if the demand of their product continues to grow, and isn't that still good if they're if they do show remorse, if they do say something like we made a mistake, does that put them back in like the pedo well wishes or is like because what's that line right? Because yeah, it mean, feels like yeah. they no, there, there is a line. I think we all have to draw our own lines in the sand. I mean. You know the the door is not closed, and, and we would like impossible to to atone and and to to say that they didn't need to do this. And uh, the very fact of the matter is that you don't need to harm any animals in order to save the planet. There are delicious, healthy soy nuggets that are readily available now on the market. So um, these tests didn't need to be done, and um, you know we're steering people away to towards other tasty alternatives. I mean, boy, that that's a little scary though, just because seeing the momentum that that impossible did and who knows like maybe it'd be it's in the name of impossible being so well maybe the product is better than beyond meat and i don't have a stake in the sand either way i think they're both pretty good Mm -hmm. um but like to potentially stifle that momentum over 170 rats like that might be my belief that i think 170 rats is not the same. Not the same as which, potentially saving a hundred thousand cows, the health of our right. So it, it's almost it's almost like look if if they have a little bit of hubris over a hundred and seventy rats and the grand scheme of me getting a potential better product because just impossible knows something about this that's better. Like yeah, there are good vegan nuggets on the market, but like I haven't tasted a lot of them and but I've tasted impossible meat and they're like they're out there and they're doing it and to my knowledge outside of that hundred like that instance of animal testing on the, on those rats like I'm getting a pretty dope product out of impossible meat that tastes pretty damn equitable mm-hmm. um, because if impossible meats is doing that to get the quality of what they're serving that like chains like umami burger that's known for this like really good burger meat, but they're taking the chance on fundamentally changing their entire business because they think Impossible Foods taste that good. Possible Foods must taste that damn good that they're doing that. And I, I would just be remorsed to like potentially stifle that momentum. Well, over- especially in the midst of how many of the alternative food products have wanted to be in the 
situation as impossible and just never could get there. They could never get the distro. Right. They could never get the funding. They can never, well, you know, all those, like, we don't know the graveyard of alternative yeah. food brands that, like, didn't get to this part. And, mm -hmm. like, they're doing it. And they're doing it to the point where, I mean, this is, again, while you're mentioning it, is the first news that I'm aware of. And so before before this podcast, me not knowing that, like I buy I would buy I've bought the impossible burger at multiple restaurants. And so like and I'm not vegan and I just like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like and and me and the consumer that are like me, like like it. And so I think that's such a rare thing and the a rare it's moment. An, it's an eye roll thing. The reason why I probably didn't make the food beast desk is because it like missed all these checks where it's like here's this massively important brand in impossible foods and then here's this stray whisper of a tip in our in our tip inbox about oh you know that brand you love that's doing all this great like pushing of alternative meat they tested on 170 rats like you guys should no longer fuck with them like give them a break that's and again i don't own any stake in impossible foods like as long as i can eat good alternative meat like that's good i was just like are we really gonna drag them through is that is this the stance that not even just PETA? like I, I think we need it's important to note that's just like vegans or people like jeff and i who i think we might fall under like flexitarian of just like starting to to incorporate like we're really gonna drag them through the mud over this and it might be a shade of different belief you might believe that 170 rats is not the price to pay for this level of innovation because other people are innovating well, that, without doing well, it. Well, that's what I, I think. That's what's been saying, right? Is like the the level, like it wasn't something that they needed to do to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Which I I, res I completely respect that, um, but it's just like, yeah, man, like d dampening that momentum is just like it's it's a once in a lifetime type company from our perspective. That's you know that's changing consumer habits so at least that element is good look you, you've got to draw the line in the sand somewhere and if peter's against uh, the exploitation of animals and that includes all animals you know rats are still individuals with personalities and emotions and if this had happened with dogs we'd certainly be hearing a lot more about sure, it we'd sure. be hearing a lot more people yeah. complain about it um vegetarians have been living for thousands of years without the impossible burger and will continue to do so happily without the impossible burger so yeah it's just you know it's not something that we're we're rallying against uh, at the moment um we're just alerting people to the test and uh, to say that there are other fantastic tasting plant-based you know it also it's got gluten in it so if there's any uh, celiacs out there maybe they'd want the uh, beyond burger instead <laughs> ben can you can you help me out with the different situation that's happening right now like like what's happening with milk mm. the four-letter word like obviously we're seeing huge uh consumer demand for the alternatives of milk but you know even within this conversation when vegan products attach themselves to meat like sometimes it's good because it's like people understand it and then sometimes it feels like with again and that's why i'm asking because i don't know the full situation behind the milk where is it bad to attach it in certain <laughs> cases where like people have an understanding of what it is and like almond milk is something that i like know almond product is something that sounds scary like what when if it like when does that make sense 
and like get behind it shouldn't be associated in the branding and when like and when does it Look, milk is uh is something that the dairy industry is trying to keep the name the terminology for its own sake and uh, they're petitioning the fda to keep milk from the other secretions of a mammal uh, and as far as Peter's concerned, we're happy for them to do so. We're happy to draw the distinction between products that come from peas and from beans and from nuts uh, compared to products that cause undeniable cruelty to animals, the separation of mothers from their calves, the uh, painful udder inflammations and lameness and mastitis and uh, kill uh, millions of uh, dairy cows unnecessarily. Their bodies become exhausted after four or five years at a fraction of their natural lifespan, after which time they're sent off to slaughter. So w milk is a four-letter word to us. We want to distinguish between milk and other healthy uh, almond, soy, pea, uh, hemp-based uh, beverages. So, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that the plant-based beverage market is taking a huge chunk out of the dairy industry. Uh, you can find them at your local grocery stores. I think there's something like 15%, but they've gone up by 64% since 2013. So that's really increasing. And uh, whatever we call it, basically, you won't stop the growth of this industry. Uh, it's where all the money's at. It's where people realizing all the time that it's better for you, that it's tasty, and that different pairings go differently with with different foods. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's what our position is: no matter what you call it, uh, you won't st stop the growth of the industry, and it's something that you, you can fight about amongst yourselves. Yeah, I mean, that was that was my question. Not that it's a PETA stance or not, but is the argument that they don't want to use that cattle and dairy industries don't want to use the word milk attached to stuff that's just not coming from an animal because it's kind of degradating their brand as milk and they're PETA scared. stances like they yeah. don't we don't care as long as people are just consuming the, the dairy industry is scared and they're doing whatever tactics they can they're saying that consumers are confused that they don't understand what's milk from a cow and what's milk I think consumers are cleverer than that and they can identify which is which has the product of, of torture to animals and which isn't. And uh, the dairy industry is doing whatever, ta running whatever games it can in order to kill off its competition because it's scared. And so this is one of the methods that they've identified. And, you know, but I, I don't think you'll kill them off. But I mean, for the, the middle ground consumer again, and I keep inserting myself in this equation because that's who I am, is the first time I ordered on the Starbucks app, ordered a latte with not almond milk, I think it's almond drink, but because it wasn't labeled as almond milk and it was labeled as almond drink, and that's probably a whole nother conversation to have, but because it wasn't almond milk specifically on my cup, I was like, what am I drinking? I don't like, want almond juice. Like, I don't I want, yeah, I, well, because it's just been branded as almond milk. And so if I see like something, I don't know what they would call it, but I feel like that's is that a thing and happening? Least, so, yeah, so Starbucks changed it from almond no, milk so to not almond Star so juice? No, I, I don't know no. what Starbucks <laughs> uses. Yeah. So I'm assuming it, there's a legal reason why it's called almond drink and not almond milk. But what it threw me off. And that's my point, is if I then go to into store and I didn't already purchase almond milk and I, didn't, and I was tr trying to transition and it says almond juice or whatever it says, I think that's tougher, right? And so I think not for the person who's already educated and already knows how to get alternative milks, but for the person who's transitioning, losing that word milk, I think is at least yeah, a, I think it's a big true. enough deal to talk about because yeah. it could stop 
a number of people from transitioning if they're just not comfortable with it. Yeah, that's too PC. I don't care where it's coming from, whether it's coming from like the vegan community or the dairy and cattle community. Like to to remove milk from that would have like you're ruining the opportunity for that entire middle sect of people to try that product because milk makes sense. Like you're, you're going after that particular texture and taste that like if it's coconut milk versus coconut juice, like there's already that very distinct coconut milk is uh white and and coconut juice is very clear and translucent so you ruin that by like trying to fickle over the word and term milk and again that if that's coming from dairy like they're that might be a pretty good job of them to kind of like dispel it i i somewhat agree that people will still con- continue to find these products and and over time learn but it would definitely slow it down like that momentum will probably in a short-term perspective and i'm pita's in the long-term perspective so like i get that but yeah for the person who doesn't follow this who doesn't follow headlines who doesn't know a ton about alternative foods if they just see some what uh, make a name up whatever you want to call it it doesn't have the brand value of 300 years of being called milk that these alternative products were able to kind of attach themselves to, which was also, and that's where I'm like, where's, where's the line? Because we talked about if someone can create an alternative bacon, like no one's going to get it if you don't call it bacon, right? You're going to, you're shaping it after bacon and then you're calling it bacon. And then should you not call it bacon after it's popular anymore like i don't know like where that transition starts and ends i think it's a cool time to talk about the vegan taqueria okay oh because so while he's yeah shouts to raul he throws his pop-up two times a week uh follow him on instagram the vegan taqueria i got really interested because they do a great job of creating these tacos that are almost indistinguishable from the meat products that they're kind of modeling after but the the owner of this raul he it's more about vegans his 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 perplexing point where he's like he talks about how a lot of vegans co-opt cruelty free Mm -hmm. and the term cruelty free but he doesn't consider himself cruelty free he's been a vegan for nine years and he's found ways to bring vegetables into his meals, into his tacos, and kind of mimic the taste of meat and provide a really dope product. But because he can't, he can't protect how he gets his product. He can't, like the vegetables that he uses are probably picked by immigrants. And so he, he, he has an issue with the cruelty aspect of where he finds his produce and he doesn't have an answer to it. As someone who is vegan, who has a great vegan business that essentially does more good for the vegan culture and community than not but he can't co-sign veganism in general for him like he he says it's way more nuanced than well, that co-sign curious. veganism as cruelty free as cruelty free as cruelty free and i'm curious how you got like everyone here thinks about that because and, and i never thought me, about like, that and to me part of the follow-up question to you ben is are there intersections where Cruelty is happening to animals and cruelty happens to humans. And is there a line where they intersect that even though 
your organization is specifically around animals where there's some sort of intersection where there is a stance or there is a co-op or there is like, you know, because that was his comment to us specifically was, I don't consider myself cruelty free because all my veggies are picked by immigrant. And I just feel like that was a, a really interesting perspective that came from someone that was pretty passionate about it and also a, and also a nine year vegan. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts too, Wally. Um, it's interesting when you say cool tree free because it's all subjective, right? So when you talk about, and I'm not like, you know, disagreeing with what Raul says and stuff like that, but as a, as a child of immigrants and, and, and people, I have a good understanding of what immigrant life is, you know? So for immigrants to come to America, whatever they're doing here is way better than what they left. You know what I'm saying? So for us to say it's cruel to feet is a little bit subjective, but I do agree that people should be paid adequately. Um, further in our point is this, yeah, it just, it just depends on what your stance on veganism is. For some, it's just like food. For me, it's like I don't buy new leather or suede or I don't consume honey or gelatin or whatever. It's just, it just depends, and everyone has their own stance about it. But it takes a lot of like like introspection, introspection about what, you think is right or wrong what moves your moral compass you know i think raul is also he takes veganism as like this this very like multi-shade and for his shade his he's like veganism is my platform to talk about immigration mm -hmm. where you know PETA's veganism might be a platform to just talk right back about animal rights and you guys do a lot of great work with with the clothing industry and so forth i mean i think that might be a little root in what he yeah. believes yeah just to kind of get into his psyche yeah i think you know it's impossible to to live without causing some harm i mean we've all accidentally stepped on ants or breathed in gnats the very essence of living in, is you're going to have some harm along the supply chain it's just the difference is uh, whether it's what the intent is. If the intent is to cause harm, as the intent is to kill millions of animals, you know, there's a difference between backing up, uh, hitting someone accidentally with your car, and deliberately running over them. Uh, so, you know, Peter would love to support every possible uh, humanitarian organization out there, and we've chosen. You know, our method is to to campaign for animals. I think there's a huge gap there um uh, interestingly my my specific coming to animal rights and working for peter you know i've i've never been one of these died in the wool animal rights campaigners really i've never never come at it from a point of view of uh having had a companion animal growing up i just think that the gap between where we are as a society and where we need to be is so huge when it comes to animals. I think everyone can generally uh, is on board with with uh, human rights and with gender rights, and we all think the same. But when it comes to what we actually think about animals and where we need to be as a society and our treatment of animals, there's a huge gulf there, and that's why I'm working for Peter. It's valuable. Is there anything that uh, I know? Well, because I was reading about the the vegan starter kit mm. are there so are there what specific services and or products are available to consumers from from the p to n that we yeah. probably don't know about yeah yeah it comes back to the earlier point about some of the good work that we do that goes unrecognized so if you go to peter.org vsk you can download your free vegan starter kit there 
Um, you can, we'll also pop one in the mail too if you give us your address. Uh, that's full of uh, useful recipes, some good inspiration about why to go vegan, some of the athletes and celebrities and people of, of, uh, of fame down the years who have been vegetarian or vegan. Um, we also offer a, a free vegan mentor service where you're paired one-on-one -on -one with someone. So when you do go to Taco Bell and don't know what to order, you can text or email your vegan mentor wow. that you've been assigned. Whoa, vegan mentor. mentor. sponsor. I told you about this. In your 30 days, I'll be your vegan sponsor. Yeah. You were a vegan sponsor. Vegan, <laughs> vegan mentor program. Check it out. It's a great resource. There's thousands of people who have signed up to it and uh, they get back to you with, uh, you know, from, from the what to order at the food restaurants but also how do I deal with a difficult uncle who's giving me grief about going vegan mm. anything like that you know mm. we're there to help we're there to, to help people make the transition is that related to the the dairy and eaters anonymous meetings and is that still a thing and where do they happen I haven't heard of them for a while. I know that's something that we tried out in DC, um, but no, we'll, we'll try anything to help people, you know, uh, from from the silly and absurd to the, the more serious, you know, if someone's got, we offer counseling for our staff who are affected by some of the videos of the animal cruelty that they have to watch day in, day out. So so yeah, we, we try anything to help people get, make the transition to a more compassionate lifestyle. The mentor program is pretty interesting to me. I, w I genuinely wish I knew about that. Yeah, uh, I can feel like my thirty days. Yeah. Um, well, I remember we so it was going on five or six years ago. Yeah. Ben, I don't even know if you were at like definitely not in the states. Um, but I think this is a, a question that we had. But we threw. You want to talk about the event that we threw that got picketed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, a few years back, I had like a men's uh, clothing brand. Uh, we were actually right around the corner, and uh, we teamed up with Food Beasts because we're friends, and we wanted to do something that was food-related. So we had this fogwa burger eating contest at the playground down the street. And, like, I think this is when fogwa was banned, right? Yeah, I think it was during that Because we were giving it away. We were giving correct. it away, yeah. Correct. So fogwa obviously, is, like, very painful process of, of cultivating that part of the animal. Uh, and uh, so there was like a lot of resistance against the event. And um, <clears throat> our, our company site actually got a DDoS attack like days leading up to the event. And uh, for those that don't know, DDoS is the distributed denial of service. It's how like people kind of take your site offline. Um, and we never had any kind of negative feedback from our consumers or from anyone in general prior to that point and it happened right before the event and the event during the event we actually got picketed and, and there were protesters and stuff like that so uh so my my question is that i'm not sure if that's actually someone directly involved with PETA and but as time has gone on i've kind of started to associate this radical uh tactics uh as as being something that PETA does like throwing paint on fur and and things like that where it actually goes beyond having a having like a a, a, a argument or a, a discussion with people about the differences on on opinion and going to do something that directly harms or uh you know it's disrespectful or things of that nature but when, when our site went down our company had you know like 20 employees is definitely affecting our livelihoods our money our you know how we live so 
my question is, is that are these tactics, is it something that might be rogue people that are within the PETA uh, infrastructure or like radical fans of PETA that take it upon themselves to do these kind of things? And uh, or is it something that's like kind of like a top down uh, directive? Um, firstly, on the specific incident, I, I don't know about that. Um, yeah. I know that it's not been a tactic of ours that, that I've known about anyway, to mm -hmm. take down websites of people. Uh, so I can't, can't really say anything about that. I do know a lot about foie gras because in, in the UK, when I was in the UK, it was a, a big campaign of ours. The process of shoving a metal pipe down the necks of geese and f feeding, pumping grain into their stomachs until they swell up to 10 times their natural size and become diseased uh, and then harvest the birds is, is one of the most cruel things in the food industry. Um, so, you know, I, I'm very against foie gras and I can understand <clears throat> how that passion and how people who understand how foie gras is made and are against it will go to extremes to make sure that it's not promoted. You know, the, yeah, unfortunately, in, in all movements, I can understand the passion of people that will lead them to go and, and be more extreme and do direct action. Um, Peter and most vegans are against violence and against, uh, you know, causing intentional harm to people. So you actually said that uh, Peter's known for throwing red paint on fur. That's actually a misconception. Yeah. Uh, that's one of those urban myths. Peter has never actually thrown red paint or, or, or blood on fur. Just one of those things in the media that uh, you kind of think back in your, in your collective memory that has happened. But so I understand where people who are passionate about this subject can can come and do that. Uh, but it's never been one of Peter's tactics. As far as where the line goes, you know, we are a 501c3 charity. We have to maintain our charity status so we don't do anything that crosses the legal line. Um, and we use provo provocation and colorful language and controversy in order to get our message across. Uh, and we probably did send some protesters down there to protest uh, and to tell people who didn't know what uh, foie gras is, that it comes from the diseased livers of, of heavily engorged birds who are then obviously killed at the end of their lives. So uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. I Quick question about the fur, because that is a misconception, and I started following you guys' podcast and all that. You guys don't throw paint on other people's furs. Is it, is, is it though, a tactic that you, you might have come to to find fur, whether someone submitted it to you guys? It's like, hey, we no longer, we, we feel guilt over this fur, and then you guys, as an image or demonstration on fur that you now own, put paint on that as a sign and an yeah, image that's probably where it comes from so again one of uh, peter's lesser known uh, operations is we have this campaign called clean out your wardrobe clean out your conscience and people do donate their furs to us when they realize that fur comes from animals who have been skinned sometimes fully conscious uh, they want to get rid of their furs. They're no longer fashionable. You walk down the street in a fur. Well, you wouldn't do so in Orange County, but you've walked down anywhere else in the world and people look at you like you're a Neanderthal, like you're an unfeeling, uncaring human being. And so people do send us their fur coats and straight away we, we put a, a massive red line or red dots all around it so they can't be sold on, so they're useless. Um, and we use them as animal bedding. We use them in uh, educational displays. 
Um, and we give them to the homeless because at the end of the day, uh, people who are in destitute situations are the only ones with any excuse to wear fur. I have a lot of chef friends that I feel like I learn a lot about and I learn a good amount of sympathy and empathy from them in my food and I feel like I learn quite a bit and what I is there is there a middle ground and, and it might not be for PETA it might not be for veganism for vegans in general but is there a place and Jeff this might be just a question for you as, as we explore like our flexitarian life and I just want our audience at Foobies Listens to Catch Up know that we're not just like here as proponents of hey everyone drop all the meat you're eating we're giving a voice to Peter we're giving a voice to Ben who is a person who has his own we're giving a voice to Wally um, but I've learned a lot from people who are extremely compassionate about animals and and farm to table the the utmost of respect paying the utmost in money for the best kind of food and limiting their intake of meat and learning more maybe they eat less chicken because there's they've really found no way of like mass market chicken to really enjoy that food is there a flexitarian like i don't know i just want our audience to know that we're not here on like one side of the soapbox like i think it's a very nuanced conversation and if food beast had any goal if i have any goal it's just to be more aware and conscientious of of where your food comes from like that's what i learned from my 30 days of going vegan and i'm back to eating meat but i think knowing that like the places that i used to frequent may not uphold the same uh value and character of where their food comes from and i eat less there and more at places i just want to shout out those chefs that like teach me more about it you know what i mean like the same restaurant that we held that foie gras burger eating challenge at many years ago where i felt a level of comfort even at that time was that chef that ran that restaurant was teaching me so much about food he's the same one that would slap me on the wrist for eating at mcdonald's um he's the one that would tell me a little bit more about foie gras and the process of it of it being made and knowing that there are different farms with different uh levels of atrocity if you feel like i that's how peter would explain it but 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 then but then there are great chefs that go through that process and and have an awakening and then still eat meat and so i I don't know there's there's texture there i'm just curious how you guys feel about that well i think it's more it's it's the reality of everyone in in between and Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of us and i think that's that's where we sit and that and it's literally like I'm pointing at you and I because mm-hmm. we're at this table, like where Eli and I sit. And what I'm always open for is the conversation and the perspective change. Yeah. And what I told you in the beginning of the podcast is I don't know if I'm going to continue going past my Blue Apron vegetarian meals or not because of the reality of I'm not thinking about it that often. But I'm also... I'm still open to the fact where I could totally shift. And I think that's where, that's what being open to perspective, no matter if we're talking about food or if we're talking about race or if we're talking about women's rights, like if you're open to the conversation and the perspective, like I'm not going, Ben's not going to agree with my lifestyle, but we can still have a conversation. And I think that's, that's the middle ground. And if Ben wants to grab 
a vegan beer after this and and can and continue to talk about it i will love to drink that that vegan beer you know and and again it's like the amount and food specifically but food and drink that's available to me that i like it's i'm not drinking it or eating it because of any other reason that it probably tastes good and i want to be a bit healthier and so that that reasoning won't be everybody you yeah. know what i mean that's we got to talk to the foodie scientists because like so nine million people watch that watermelon ham video that we talked about earlier in this podcast and the comments are so split the comments are like yo stop white people 2018 hashtag like they consider it like a white thing to do and then people are like oh i'd never eat that that like that's not steak that like stupid dumb 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 stupid like that also is the curse of the internet the blessing and the curse is just that like people have a mouthpiece well wide viewership but commenting is on yeah <laughs> it's yeah. all egg, egg but comments it's like, can't we just appreciate that watermelon ham for like the creativity that it is yes it's not a steak yes you might still be a little hungry after but come on like enjoy that creativity that kind of that kind of irked me, but just know that there is nuance. There are people out there that are right in the middle and that we're with you. Jeff and I are with you. I mean, all of us here in this room, I feel are generally with you. And whether you're Wally or Ben, like you want to be heard, you have like there's people that you can reach out to and talk to about that stuff. But also plant based tuna is a thing as of uh yeah. As of like a couple hours ago when we were reported on it. Oh, they got they got some in uh in Long Beach next to my apartment. They do plant based tuna? Yeah, bluebird sushi. Ooh, okay. boy. Is that an actual? <laughs> is that a sushi spot? Yeah, that but they fish, do. But they have they do vegan too for like a full vegan menu. Ooh. Yeah. What's that like? What's vegan? What's vegan sushi like? It depends where you go. Yeah, like, doesn't sound good. I'll be honest with you. Oh, so the place like next to my apartment is like kind of like rolls and and things like that. But they do some really cool stuff. Like they have like this thing called like the strawberry frenzy, where I've never seen strawberries on like sushi before, and it's kind of like. They have tempura inside, so they, I think they have like tempura green beans and something like that. So it's kind of like a crunch roll with like tofu. It's like sweet, it's savory. It's pretty. It's really dope. The tuna over there, I think they use like a, some kind of like tomato like thing. So it has a the texture really interesting. Seems like it might make sense. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Hmm. But if you go to a place like Sojin and uh, they have one downtown LA and I think one on the west side, like Sojin's like <laughs> so good. Sojin is crazy. All That's like all vegan. Yeah, you know, you know. So like, uh, someone told me that that I think Sojin, uh, I think Sojin Juri is is uh, is what they Japanese make for monks like the food they serve monks in oh, japan oh, so that's why like, there's so much attention to detail besides obviously everything japanese people do is just like so much better than everyone mm. else <laughs> <laughs> you just, ever seen a, like a japanese lowrider like community <laughs> no yo they're so into lowrider cars like you think they're from like east la bro <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that community existed yeah it does but um yeah sojin you sojin yeah i love it love fire. it I, I, I don't if we've got time i want to come back to this point about uh humane meat because okay. humane meat is one of these things that has has is really a reaction to people being disturbed by the animal cruelty that they see of course it's better to treat animals you know give them a bit more room treat them better than it is to to, to not give them any welfare concerns at all but as far as I'm concerned, if you're taking an animal's life before they want that life to be taken at a fraction of their natural lifespan, how can that be ethical? You know, no matter how well you treat them, whether you 
uh, cuddle them every day, whether you sing to them, whether you give them grass or whatever they want to eat, you're taking that animal's life with a captive bolt gun and with a knife to its throat before it, just when it's profitable, when you want to do it. Animal welfare is a barrier to profits and wherever there's money to be made from killing animals and selling their body parts, corners are going to be cut and animals are going to suffer. So humane meat to us is a myth and you're much better off choosing plant-based or vegan options. Reach, what's up, man? That kind of touches how I feel about, though, about balance of life. Because I know we talked about it when we first met, and I asked you that question, in terms of balance of life and how you feel about, and also how PETA feels about others who depend on, like, the natural consumption of meat and animals, um, whether they be native people or not. Um, I just wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, I mean... First of all, none of those people are probably in this room or listening to the podcast. So I think that that kind of hypothetical argument is always used. I'm not saying Rich is using it, but is often used to to distract the conversation away from our everyday food choices. I'm not trying to distract. No, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But but what, but when it comes to people in in dire situations and people sort of on the fringes of society, of course we all do we all do things in those situations to benefit us and preserve our life. And you know we don't go after the Inuits uh, who you know or, or people who. Uh, that's that's their only form of protein. We're saying that it would be great to bring the Beyond Burger to them, uh, and so that they can enjoy a, a more compassionate and and more uh, you know plant-based vegan lifestyle. When you say humane meats, I've never heard this term. Is this like cage-free, free-range, yeah. 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 grass-fed? Yeah. yeah, I'm. Con- I haven't done any research on this, by the way, but I'm convinced that's all marketing copy. Like, there's no way for a large-scale factory farming operation to do something that's free-range. Like, you're telling me a chicken can, like, just walk freely and wear a captive and about to be slaughtered? There's just not enough real estate, like, actually, And we've actually covered that on Food Beast on food labeling and its definitions and what what they actually are. So uh, that's definitely... there's, There's marketing jargon and speak in every food product but there's also marketing jargon to speak for anyone that has an agenda on uh, anyway. in any industry there, there's a way to frame things as we're framing things on this podcast yeah like there's always going to be a way to frame things but i think you're right the the vision that the consumer has with free range and the definition of what free range to go on a label those are drastically different things of what the perception versus the reality yeah. is. i mean and yeah, sorry, go to ahead, put it into perspective, the why that really isn't because you'll rarely ever say that see something that says like pasture raised beef, like unless it's like very exclusive because a cow is such much larger an animal than a chicken that there's no way for a factory farm to actually sell something that's pasture raised on a large scale. That's why it probably doesn't exist in your market. I could be wrong. I'm just making. No, I, I, I totally agree. And yeah. uh, if you look at uh, terms like free range, you know, mm-hmm. free range, all it means is that the animals are not kept in a cage and have access to the outdoors. Now, Peter did an investigation really of one of the, the highest welfare free range farms and found 20,000 chickens stuck in a barn with only a square foot per chicken. 
access to the outdoor through a tiny hatch which is right down the other end of the barn and is only open for eight hours of the day you know that's not the impression that people think when they think free-range chicken they think a chicken walking around in a, a huge enclosure where they've got lots of space to dust bathe and to uh, scratch in the ground and do all the things that chickens do naturally they think of backyard chickens essentially so no i think i, I think Wally's completely right you know animal welfare is a barrier to profit and you can't sell meat and dairy and eggs to the consumers without some kind of cruelty to animals. The only way to break that cycle of cruelty to animals is to go vegan. The humane part of, so speaking about humane meat for a moment and saying that, I think that comes down to a belief system as well. So when we say we're so far removed in the example that you used of, you know, Rich talking about people that are dependent on certain meats. I mean, you just go to another country and there's villages. Like I come from a village where people raise chickens. They are genuinely just floating around. There's no cage whatsoever. There's no fence. You go, right? They, they don't have to eat that chicken, but it's something that has become... You know, I think those are the examples that I'm talking about. And for us to assume that everyone has the same belief that a human is a chicken, is a cow, is a whatever, is not something that I believe we can just say everyone does believe in, should believe in. You know, there's religions where there's different various levels of respect to animals where you don't touch them or you do touch them, you must cut them, whatever. Um, So to say that is to assume that all religions are on an equal playing field and so you might believe that but there's certain people that just might be listening and be like i just don't believe that a chicken deserves the same footprint that i do i'm not saying that's right or wrong um but again so then there's that level of a little bit more humane meat that may f- make them feel a little bit better a little bit more in touch with something a little more holistic that some villages in rural whether you're in Vietnam or in Lebanon or whatever in the Philippines, like people in the Philippines, like they eat like my girlfriend's mother's like they're talking about like the crickets that they used to roll. I mean, this is the the fat of the land to them. So I think it comes down to a belief system. So I'm not saying what you're promoting is wrong. It's a belief system that you uphold and the the factors in your life led you to believe that. Um, so the idea of us like one day being able to drop like impossible meat to people like in remote areas of Lebanon and the Philippines is like, it's a fun idea. And I I think it's admirable by all means to, to share more knowledge with people. Because again, this disparate idea of people in villages, it may not be realistic to us here, but there's, you know, there's someone down the road in San Clemente who's on a pod on our podcast not too long ago who lives a very holistic life where he did not take any public transit to get here to the podcast. And even though in a car he would have been 10 minutes away, took him a good hour and a half to get here using a skateboard. And he has a farm and he's maybe 95% of the way vegan, but raises his own chickens. The chicken can go and come as it leaves, as it pleases. Yet... When it's time to go, when he I, I don't know the methods of when he decides his chicken is time to go, it's time for his family to eat, he does it. So I don't know if it's entirely fair to just assume that everyone is of a potential almost like religious I don't ideology. Think, but I don't think that assumption has been made either by Ben or, or anyone. I yeah, think my position is a little bit different. I think it's exactly the same of 
you can be Muslim and you can be Christian. You can have thought. You can have a thought practice around your family and Buddhism that is isn't necessarily like you have. You have to. The whole world has to be it. But sure. this is my stance, and here's my argument. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the interse- I don't know how much we want to like intersections with religion because that's like a pretty a crazy thing. thing. Yeah. But the process of evangelizing is not that dissimilar. Sure. Right. Of just like spreading the news of what you believe in has is definitely, I feel like, part of the mission for, for anyone that has a thought process and wants to ensure that thought process grows and or continues to exist like in a world. So I just don't think the assumption was made, but I but I hear what you're saying is that there's going to be people all across the world that will never resonate with a certain belief system. I, I would imagine, Ben, your argument is though, as, as long as we can continue to grow, mm. it could become more of a dominant yeah. belief system. Yeah, I think, firstly, no religion needs to slaughter animals. They, they will have different practices about how to do it, but no religion says we must slaughter animals. As far as cultural norms go, they adapt over time, and just as ours have adapted over the last hundred that millennia, you know, other cultures will hopefully come on board with the idea of more plant-based eating. The biggest vegetarian communities are in India and China, actually. Um, so it's, it's them who are teaching us a lot about our treatment of animals and showing us just how bad they can be in the United States. Uh, I think most people want to see animals treated well, and if they have options available to them where animals no longer are required to be part of their food supply, then that's what they will choose. Yeah, and then, I mean, touching back on the impossible meat stuff, we're talking about how they're doing lab testing on, on rats, and then uh, Ben said that they haven't made the commitment to stop doing the animal testing, so that's why PETA can't support it. Me, I support impossible in the fact that it is a great platform for other people who are not vegan or who never even think about trying vegan food. It's a great way for them to be ushered in and have something that is similar in taste and and bite to their palate that they can enjoy. And it could be like a gateway for them to maybe not become all the way vegan, but have less meat, you know? And for me, when I say I don't, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm not on the impossible support train anymore. It's just more, I don't put my dollars into mm. impossible anymore. But as far as recommendations and stuff like that, like any anything I can do to introduce someone to, like vegan is like positive in my in my book you know and it can prevent more people from eating less meat like i'm down with that but as far as my own dollars like i'm just gonna go to to be on so there's like there's so much nuance you know what i mean yeah yeah that was dope i think that's that's close to that i feel i feel pretty good about this podcast i want to feel yeah great yeah. thanks for having me it's been yeah. such a good discussion we've yeah. hit every point I think so too. We actually like interwove some of the questions people were sending us anyway on Instagram and, and Facebook. So everyone that is listening, thank you guys so much for sending in those questions and just being active with the catch up. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, Ben, for thank taking you. the time and coming all the way down to Orange County. Wally, always thank you. Plant based God. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can follow Ben on Tofu Homeboy, right? Yeah, you can to- on uh, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Wally's What's Up Wally, Jeffrey Kutnick's at Jeffrey Kutnick. I'm at Book of Eli. And uh, yo, go ahead and 
Go ahead and throw those comments on the iTunes podcast review. Tell us what you like. Subscribe. Liked about. Subscribe. You like this episode? You hated this episode? We want to hear either way. And guys, we're back. And the we catch so up back. is back. We're so back. So get um, ready for those weekly episodes, mm. season two. Should we just do like a donut time? Yeah, donut donut time. Time. I just want to chew into this microphone for really. Mm. I'm going to chop it. Oh, so Wait, where are, these, where are these vegan donuts from? Okay, so we got Good Town Donuts. Good Town Donuts, thanks for the record. Mesa. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're fire. Yo, this is nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and go, go out there and try a vegan spot for all the meat eaters that are listening. Just go try a vegan spot. It's fun. See what you like. See what you didn't like. And if you got vegan news, send it our way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Editorial at foodbeast.com. Please mm-hmm. send all the tips, all the news. We are keeping the tradition alive really long. Outros? <laughs> just way too long. This the outros being way too long. I was long. just chomping down you, on vegan donuts. <laughs> you like threw in the donut cheers and I was like, this mm. is going to be so long it's of an long outro. outro. All right. Well, thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Peace.